friends, Romans, countrymen, let me your ears. Ladies and gentlemen, you are tuned to the MC Lars podcast. It is Wednesday, August 21st. This is episode 51, brought to you by the following Patreon Larsians. Want to shout out the new ones, Andrew Kessel Run. Yes, that's his name. Gabriel and the literate juggalo, a.k.a. Josh. Josh is one of the reasons why I played the Gathering of the Juggalos. He's a great dude, funny guy, sweet guy. And I'm bringing back Hatchet Chat, so stay tuned for that. Also, shout out to some of my old Patreon supporters, Lars, who found me because back in the day I did an anti-Hot Topic song. Then Hot Topic licensed one of my shirts to show that they were down with my rebellion. And because I want to destroy the system from within, I licensed the logo. Lars saw the MC Lars shirt at Hot Topic and then was like, who's that? And he became a fan. He's been to all of my North Carolina shows. Um, Bo Lewis is one of my supporters. Shout out to Bo. I went to college with him. And he's a great rapper, great dude. And uh, I want to shout out the third old supporter, Zintno. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's Z-T-Y-N-Z-O. Zintzo. Thank you all very much. If you want to hear my entire archive of Patreon songs, you can sign up for as little as $2 a song. I drop two songs a month. That's only $4 a month to get all my new songs. I'm doing some songs about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, all sorts of flavor. So check that out. The Patreon keeps me going. I'll never have ads on the podcast, but everything's there. And uh, if you do join the Patreon, you get to be one of the featured Larsons every week on the podcast where you get to call in tell an MC Lars story. I play your message at the end of the podcast and you get a free shirt, but that's only available to the Patreon Larsons. So that's what's up. Let's get into it. This week we got Matt Sankum, who is a very cool dude. Like I feel like he and I could be friends. He's an awesome guy. Someone tagged us both on Twitter and I asked him if he'd be on the podcast. He created a very popular site called The Hard Times, which is essentially like a funnier, better onion which is more topical and more modern. I don't know how to describe it, but this hard times is hilarious. My friend Andy, who runs Toxic Toast Theater down in Long Beach, who put out some of my albums on vinyl, told me about the hard times, and I started following them, and they are hilarious. Their headlines are awesome. Here's some of my favorite headlines of theirs. New kid in scene, not sure which merch table to aimlessly stand by. That's very funny, because as those of you know, sometimes when you're doing merch, people just hang out at merch, because they feel awkward. And that's fine. I'm happy to talk to you for four hours about your favorite Pokemon characters. But if you want to go watch the show, I won't be mad. <laughs> so that's a funny article. Online activists blissfully unaware everyone unfollowed him years ago. Matt and I talk about how people on Twitter like to get into fights and sometimes it alienates friends. So that's a funny headline. Here's another one. Haunted punk house, terrifying for a whole other slew of reasons. And it, the picture has like a dirty sink and like a dirty room. Very funny. And this is another funny one. Band down to last 9,994 copies of new record. Because <laughs> they only sold six. Get it? Um, I love it because it kind of, it highlights the futility of being an independent band, being in a punk band, but also celebrates the like intrepid energy it takes to survive in the culture. And Matt and I get into all this stuff like super deep. He started a new site called The Hard Drive, which is gaming articles, funny gaming articles, but we talk about how he started the hard times, how he was a writer for the SF Weekly, which shout out to SF Weekly. That was the first press I ever got was an article in that when I was still in college and Matt wrote for that. He grew up out in Danville and a lot of you probably know I grew up in the Oakland Hills until I was in middle school and then my parents moved down to the central coast. But 
I have a lot of memories of the music industry, the music scene. Wouldn't, wouldn't say industry, maybe industry, the music scene in the Bay Area as a kid. Um, he talks about his band Zero Progress, where he played this comedy character called the Champ or the Champion of Hardcore, who would uh, basically talk mess about other bands and he'd be like a hardcore punk rock singer who was also a wrestler and how that got him into trouble but how zero progress was one of his first musical projects and i love how he talks about how i don't know if you notice this a lot of people these days feel like if they're awesome at something they deserve success they deserve an audience you know and i think as social media has proven unless you're unrelentless and just go out there and do it. No one's going to care that you're like an amazing rapper or piano player, right? All the people who are successful are people who have buttressed their content with amazing video and audio and putting stuff out, which the hard times is an example of, like he says, he says something like they didn't ask to be a publication. They were a publication in spite of everything. I love that quote. Um, we also talk about the corporate choking of social media and how word of mouth is like different now than it was a few years ago and how like Facebook has created a bottleneck where you have to monetize to build your audience. And after the interview, we hung out and uh, we watched, I waited for my wife, Ashley, to come pick me up after the interview. And we watched UFC and Matt kind of explained a lot about that, which I didn't know much about MMA and everything. So he's a cool guy. Um, what else did I want to say? Oh, they are promote the Hard Times is promoting a Misfits Rancid show at the Oakland Arena, aka the Oracle Arena, on September 11th. So we talk about that, and I wanted to end talking about how Ian McKay both inspired both of us. He just reached out, emailed Ian to do an interview, and they did an interview. And Ian was like, "I'll do an interview if it's not a comedy one." And then he followed up and sent him a postcard. And I had a similar experience when I sampled waiting room for robot kills for no logo i just emailed info at discordrecords.com and ian wrote me back i sent him the album sent him a 27th street comic book and uh, ian sent me a postcard so he's you know shout out to ian mckay you know creating something despite of everything like it's cool to have a similar experience with that we're going to end the episode with no logo because that's the song that sampled fugazi that's what's up check out matt's new site outvoice.com it's like a platform that helps writers get paid for their articles. And he talks about how that's becoming more of his focus these days. So let's get right into it. This is my interview with Matt Sankum. Matt, thank you for your time. You're an awesome guy. And uh, I love the hard times. It's an amazing site. Okay, here we go. I'm here in Pacifica, California with Matt Sankum. <laughs> and like 15 other people in close proximity. <laughs> They're doing some work on your house, right? <laughs> yeah. People say it's it's foggy, but your yard is gorgeously sunny. Yeah, man. Uh, I live in a place called the Sun Valley. And the whole notion is that some reason why the mountains behind us, the way that they're shaped, it like catches all the uh, fog off the ocean. Ah. And then you end up uh, in a nice little sunny area. Um I love it here. I've lived here for six years. Um, I moved in with a group of people, and all of them have moved out by now besides me. Uh, so I think I'm like a local now. I might run for mayor. I'm not sure. <laughs> so are you like the dude who sends in the rent check and talks yeah, to the landlord? Yeah. yeah. That's good because then you can never be voted out of the, out of the voted house. Out, <laughs> voted out of the island like it's a reality TV show. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool, man. You grew up 
in the East Bay? Yeah, I grew up in Danville, um, upper middle class suburban area near Walnut Creek. Um, yeah, I grew up in Danville, and there was actually a really cool punk scene there um, for a second when I was like probably a senior in high school, and right after I went off to college, we had a couple bands all together who would play shows in garages, and uh, there was a venue called The Grange. That was a little bit before my time, mm. um, but yeah. We had a lot of fun, like, building up our own little weird suburban punk scene there. And the East Bay has such amazing roots in punk rock. Yeah. Like, it goes back to the beginning, basically. It's weird, though, because things are so tribal that um, Danville, although it's part of the East Bay, it's, like, a very different culture and community than Berkeley. You know what I mean? So um, we definitely had our own thing that we tried to bring to the wider Bay Area. How would you, how would, what are some big differences between Danville and Berkeley? Or, um, you you know, you want to say that Danville, the kids have more money, but the truth is, is Berkeley is so well off. That's probably not true. Mm. Uh, but Berkeley just has more of like a city vibe, I guess. Um, so people don't really, I think people didn't really like kids from Danville because it seemed like, at least I got a little shit, you know, that we had, we were from too cushy of a neighborhood to be interested in punk or something like that. Uh. Um, but then we ended up making a lot of friends in Oakland, um, going to a lot of shows at the Swamp, which was a DIY basement venue um, that Allie, my friend, ran. It was really fun. Uh, they just like knocked down some walls in this basement in Oakland, and uh, we had a whole bunch of shows there. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. Berkeley, there was definitely some people from Berkeley High who, in my mind, they all kind of blended in, and they seemed like Oakland kids. I ended up living in that Oakland area where like, you're right on the border of Berkeley during college. I lived on College Avenue, right by uh, Zachary's Pizza. Oh, okay. You ever been cool. to that pizza place? Yeah, yeah, it's a yeah. good spot. It's yeah, a good man. spot. I lived in, um, in 2009, 2010, I lived by Lake Merritt mm. for a while, and I always loved going to Berkeley and, like, you know, I, the Bay Area, even though I don't live here anymore, it's always home. Yeah, dude. Do you feel like you would ever leave or not? No. Yeah. <laughs> I had a girl try to ask me to leave with her one time, and I was like, can't do it. I'm like, um... Charlie from Always Sunny, you know, he's never left Philadelphia. I'm like, ah. but you know, I whenever I went on tour, we did a couple of US tours, and it's like, I think the Bay Area is the best place. I agree. So I don't want to leave. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, uh, and what's cool about Pacifica is that it almost feels like you're up in Humboldt or somewhere like far away in California. It's beautiful, but it's not as noisy and hectic as San Francisco. It's extremely quiet. Yeah. And that's really, really nice. If I work a lot and I feel like I can really just like, relax when it comes to night here um it's like there's no noise wow. like if your neighbor coughs you can like hear him through the walls you know what i mean and it's kind of weird but it's kind of nice and relaxing and the right behind me here you know i don't have any neighbors behind me it's just a mountain right so yeah. I, I go hiking whenever i want all that sort of like i'm kind of into that nature stuff i feel like it grounds you a bit um, I agree. it's much different than living like five stories up in a noisy city yeah that sort of stuff um, so yeah, I like Pacifica a lot. I feel lucky to live here. And that's the cool thing about being a writer. You can live anywhere and running a website, right? Well, yeah, if you make money. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Um, I'm yeah. lucky. This used to be my grandmother's house. Um, yeah. so I have, uh, family connections that allow me to live in Pacifica because I believe even though this house is, looks, it was built in 1955. So it's like a little rundown. Um, it's like worth like over a million dollars, I think. Wow. And I couldn't afford that. So yeah. I'm lucky. Um, That's awesome. But things are going well, right? You're diversifying with the hard times. You, yeah. I, thank you. You gave me a copy of the upcoming book. Yeah. I, you're the first person to get one. 
I am fortunate. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, Matt. <laughs> Tell, um, t- talk to me about what gave you the idea to do a book and like the process putting together. Yeah. So, I mean, as soon as we started Hard Times, we had a whole bunch of ideas. Um, once you have an audience that builds up like that, where it's like, oh shit, all of a sudden 3 million people are engaged with you like on a regular basis, um, you start thinking, you know, what other creative things can we do? And um, we'd always thought that books would be good. Um, I believe very early on, um, back when my older brother was still helping the website, um, him, Bill Conway, my co-founder, and I were all talking about what sort of books would be good. And we kind of came across this notion of a retrospective. Um, you know, we I think b- books like American Hardcore really played a big role in my life. You mm-hmm. know, it taught me a lot about the music that I enjoyed. And so we kind of wanted to do like a scene look back history book. Um, so in this new Hard Times book, we have... Um, articles from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and uh, we say that hard times existed all throughout and have been reporting on it um, throughout the all time. Yeah, cover. The <laughs> yeah. first 40 years of the cover. first 40 years of punk and hardcore. So, um, yeah, it was really, really fun, and it was uh, it came together very naturally. Normally when you go and pitch a book, you have to like, get an agent, and you have to like go meet with a whole bunch of people on, I forget what street it is. There's a street in New York that's like a publishing street. Yeah. And, uh, for this one, there's just a, a woman named Kate, uh, I don't want to mispronounce her last name, Napoliano, Napolitano, I don't know. It's a fucking super Italian name, I guess. <laughs> Is that Italian? Sounds Italian, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like too, too Italian to pronounce. <laughs> um, but she just came to us and she said, hey, have you guys ever thought about doing a book? And we said, yeah, we actually have a plan for one. She goes, all right, well, let's do that then. She used to work at Penguin and she had just moved to HMH. Um, and she brought us along with her and she made sure everything she communicated to the bureaucracy of a publishing company our ideas and that's a really important thing because sometimes there's like a loss in translation effect where yeah. it's like you're trying to do this weird punk thing and the 80 year old guy who runs the company doesn't quite get it uh-huh. and so kate was able to talk to everyone and, and convince them that this was a good idea for a publishing company who normally puts out textbooks i believe is like oh, their yeah, main out in mifflin right yeah yeah that they should put out a punk book so right. kate's got some good um good pool in the industry and she helped us out a lot so it's new articles it's not stuff from the site or is it so there's half new articles the first half of the book maybe a little bit more is new articles along with storyline points all about the history of our website and company okay and then um the back half are our favorites from the website. Ah, cool. So um, if you have a favorite article from Hard Times, it might be in there. But yeah. also, if you just thumb through it, you're going to find something new. So that was the idea. It was the uh, best of both worlds. That's cool, man. I cannot wait to read this. Yeah. It's pretty dope. It's also like it's a kind of like coffee table book. Like You can just like throw it down and then pick it up whenever you want and read one page and have a good laugh. And then, you know what I mean? <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. How? So what was, from start to finish, from... The conception to holding it in your hand, like what was the total time? Six months ago. Okay. But, but like we're we're just actually finishing it like yesterday. Oh my gosh. You know what I mean? So it's like it just kind of drags out and drags out. Do you, so if, had you known it was going to be this much work, would you maybe have second, had a second thought? I would have asked for more money <laughs> is what I would have done. Because uh, I thought, oh, hey, well, half of the book is already done because it's going to be, like, best of articles. Yeah. And we know how to write articles, so it won't be, like, this huge thing. You yeah. You know what I mean? And then it just kind of became, you know, just you got to argue about what the cover looks like, and you have to argue about this and that, and uh, maybe not argue, collaborate. Uh, collaborate. But it's, uh, it's a lot of time went into this book. 
particularly yeah. Bill and Chrissy, they did a lot of uh, intense work. They dealt with the contributors a lot more than I did, um, which is a whole nother style of work. We have to talk to like 50 people and get them all to collaborate effectively. So that can be a lot. A lot of work went into this book, but yeah. it feels really good to thumb through it and be like, hey, the hard times exist. It's a real thing. You know, you can put it up on the shelf and say, you know, we made this website. Sometimes it's like with the website, there's so many people who read it, but it feels a little bit like, you know, because it's just like online. Uh -huh. it's like a, how much is like a YouTube view worth? You know, it feels kind of fake. Uh, and this, this book, because we put it out through these people, it's like you're going to be able to walk into any Barnes and Nobles, if those still exist, um, bookstore anywhere, and you're going to be able to just get this book. That's cool. You know, so like, um, I feel like, I feel like it's a interesting contribution to the subculture, and so I'm proud of it. Would you do a second volume if it goes well? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I would love to do more books. I That's actually, cool. we have several ideas for several more books. Um, once we got into this one and started realizing how cool it was going to be to have a book, yeah. we like definitely started thinking of more ideas. It just, we, we would need to do, we would need to change a couple things. We would, like about the process. Right. I had this whole notion that, I already had a system in place. Lawyers had talked to me and we had understood what fair use was. Mm. And I found out that uh, HMH's lawyers definitely did not have the same idea of what fair use was. And so we ended up having to do all the photos like two or three times. And that created just like a nightmare situation of work and extra spent money. Um, so, yeah, I think I could do the second. I think if I had to do a book again, I could do it better this time. That's cool. Yeah. You know you know that translation to print media. Yeah. Before. Yeah, I hadn't done that before. So fair use being that if it's a photo that is like a parody, mm -hmm. it's, it works differently online than in print? Or what's like an example? That's a very interesting... I would argue it's the same, but yeah. HMH didn't think so. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, fair use is a complicated thing because fair use is only a... It's only an excuse out of copyright infringement you're it's an it's a defense you're saying i did infringe your copyright but it's fair use okay um and usually if you transform an image so if you take like five different images and you jam them all into one thing so that you put like joey ramon in a space suit or whatever uh, right. it doesn't actually matter who took the photo of joey ramon's face if you put him in outer space and you completely change all the uh information around it <laughs> um right. but for whatever reason their legal team thought that it still did matter who took the picture of Joe Ramon's face, even if it was one part of a new composite image that's been transformed and include 15 new images. Right. And so we ended up having to go back and track down every single photo. Um, uh, that, <laughs> and, and, and getting a permission or having to And getting a permission one. or redoing it. Because you can't take a new photo of Joey Ramon yourself. <laughs> yeah, it, it was a fucking nightmare. It wouldn't work out well. Yeah, so, you know, maybe, like, looking back on it, do a second book, maybe I'll do illustrations or something oh, like that. Cool. You know what I mean? Um, but one of the things that's so fun about your website is the pictures are always like surprising and they look like real. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's yeah. a, you know, the guy in charge of that, his name is uh, Chris and he played in a band called Mindset that was one of my favorite bands. Oh, wow. And uh, he got involved in the website super early on. He was the guy who said we should make an Instagram. Hey. Um, and yeah, uh, he does a really good job, especially considering the resources we give him. <laughs> You know, the Onion and other companies like that, they have like an art team with like, they have a green screen and they're like using body doubles, you know, so they yeah. go and they pose it in a suit and then they just change the head and stuff like that. Oh, wow. And ours is all composite off of Shutterstock and all that sort, sort of stuff. So That's awesome. We, I think, I think Hard Times performs, it's kind of like you put like a remote control car in like 
a professional race car race, and then we came in like third. And people are like, whoa. <laughs> that's a pretty good performance for that budget. Yeah. Well, that's right. And that's what I love about your company and the website is that creating something from nothing, that whole punk yeah. rock ethos. And it's this intersection of things that never hasn't really existed. And as people lose faith in institutions and with the death of Mad Magazine and everything, yeah. it, it has this place in the culture that was like when I discovered it, I found it through my friend Andy, who runs a venue in Long Beach. Cool. And uh I was like, this is awesome. And what I one of the first things I really enjoyed were all the articles about the juggalos uh-huh. <laughs> where it wasn't just the joke oh shaggy doesn't understand how magnets work uh-huh. it was like a strong understanding of the culture and like the history mm-hmm. of that in a funny way that wasn't like making fun of them as a cheap joke which mm-hmm. i feel like a lot of mainstream media did yeah I, mean, I got juggalo friends yeah um, <laughs> you know uh i think one that's one of the i'm glad you noticed that because that's one of the main things that we try to do is we try to be the website that can make uh subcultural jokes but with a little bit of knowledge behind them and not be too afraid that not everyone's going to get it, you know? Um, it does become a little bit more difficult because our website has expanded pretty quickly. Yeah. And now the audience is so large that sometimes, like, we'll make a joke about a hardcore band and half our people will be like, who's that? <laughs> you know? Um, but we still do them. It's just, like, it's becoming a little bit weird. And I actually got into a little of a weird moment where we put out these... I've always wanted to make these like Fred Perry ripoff polos. Okay. Um, and so they look just like a Fred Perry, like the twin tips, but instead of a Fred Perry laurel wreath on the chest, it has the hard times boot. Okay. And we put those up. And um, if you grew up in the punk scene, you know that it's like, that's what punks wear when they have to dress up. That's like the fancy clothes for punks. Yeah. A lot of guys get married in them and stuff. And immediately I started getting comments being like, that's a Proud Boys shirt. And I, it just was so frustrating to me because that just means that you didn't grow up in punk. And if you didn't grow up in punk, like, kind of why are you reading my website? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, who are you? It's like, you're freaking me out. And um, and then I was like, that only, I commented and I was like, that only makes sense if you don't know anything about punk. And then the person commented back, I really don't know anything about punk. And I was like, all right, well. So you're educating these people. <laughs> yeah, it's just weird though, right? Because it's like when I started this thing, I thought only... 10 or 15 of my punk friends would like it, uh-huh. you know, now it's just, it's just too big at this point. So I guess some of the things that we do gets get lost on some percentage of the audience. Whenever we mention things, uh, you can see part of our audience go to it because uh. even like Bill and I have a new podcast and he said something on the podcast, like, Oh, follow Matt on Instagram. And I was like, why is he saying that? Cause it's like, we don't normally do that on our podcast. Yeah. And then throughout the week, I was getting more and more Instagram followers and I wasn't posting anything. And I was thinking, did someone tag me in something? Why are these people following yeah. me? I, I actually couldn't connect the dots. And then I was like, oh, people actually listen to our podcast. Yeah. And so it's weird. It's just when we bring stuff up, it really is a level of exposure that I do think people start turning on uh, the bands or following the things or buying whatever we post. Yeah. It's pretty weird. It's You become a tastemaker. Yeah, a little bit. And that's an interesting question it's a it's an interesting balance to be the underdog making fun of people whilst while growing i guess yeah. do you think about it consciously or do you just kind of do your like how do you well it's a little weird right because now when we started it's you know i used to have a punk zine that was kind of almost the same thing as hard times it was just you know comedy yeah it wasn't quite news comedy articles yet but it was just comedy and um it's weird to think that it used to be me going to shows at Gilman and then doing joke reviews of them. 
and you know 30 people would read it and now it's almost hard times has become bigger than some of the things that it covers and that's a little bizarre oh you know a lot of other satire publications they have something that they're they have a format that they're satirizing like a magazine or an institution so yeah. like the onion has like the new york times like reductress has like those glossy magazines at the checkout stand mm. what is hard time satirizing at this point we're like one of the <laughs> bigger punk institutions out there yeah right you know right, what I mean? right. <laughs> yeah. like there is no punk magazine that much bigger than us that we're actually uh, satirizing the format yeah like what not alternative press that's the scene right. thing right? that's yeah okay. it's different different crowd yeah that's interesting so we've become well it's like maximum rock and roll had it still existed maybe or yeah but we were or does it still we, exist even when it did exist it's i think it exists online now yeah. but even then the amount of people that read hard times is way bigger than the amount of people who read maximum rock and roll totally, yeah so it's became a you know and also we didn't like fit that format if we made like a print zine that looked like maximum rock and roll as a satire that'd be really funny right um but we didn't do that so we just like did our own weird little thing yeah yeah so it's kind of bizarre that is bizarre yeah um but that's exciting right yeah like to go from you i imagine you played in bands and you toured right yeah back in the day do you miss those years do you, would you ever want to tour again? And yeah, sometimes. Yeah, we we're putting we put on a couple of shows now. This is like kind of getting into that point of the growth is like some of the most amazing bands that had these like gigantic impacts on my life. When they come to town now, they want hard times to book the show. That's dope. And I think about when I was younger and I was playing in bands and I couldn't get on any cool shows. And now if I was in a band, how I could play with all the people who I always admired. Um, so I, I definitely miss it sometimes. Um, I played in a band with, I played in a couple of bands in high school that like went on tour. We did a couple of U.S. tours, went to Canada. I never got to Europe or Australia, which I wanted to do. Um, and then when I was older, I played in another band with some guys from like Ceremony and Loma Prieta. And they were like, they had, they had like good connections or whatever. People like respected them. So like, I think our first show was with the Cro-Mags, um, which awesome. is like, I remember hating those bands growing up. The bands that would like just be like, oh, it's members of, so they get to play. Yeah, you know right. what I mean. Like they didn't earn it. Um, <laughs> but now I kind of wish that I had another members of band. I'm too busy. Yeah, I tried to start one again. I'm too busy. I, I do too much stuff. But you're in a place of curation. You filled this gap that the world needs, and um, it's interesting. It's like, a very generous way of putting it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't I, know how much the world needs it. <laughs> the world certainly wants it. Yeah, it's like sugar or something, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, that was like growing up in California. I always felt like. Punk rock on the West Coast is different than the East Coast, for sure. Uh -huh. And later in life, I became straight edge, and I learned more about that mm -hmm. stuff. And, like, I learned a lot how, like, I read, what's the what's the book called? Give Me Something Better. Have you heard of that book? It's like an oral history mm -hmm. of East Bay punk. And it was interesting to th read about how, I guess in punk everywhere, there was a lot of, like, debauchery mm -hmm. and a lot of heroin. And, like, yeah. thinking of that time and what a lot of those people ended up doing. And so it's uh -huh. this question, like, what what do you do as a punk rocker growing up, right? Like, yeah. humor is always important. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So it's like, as you move forward, what are some of the other things? You're working on a TV show, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, okay, so that's a weird, that's, I, yeah, so I went straight edge when I was in high school, um, like, really early on. Mm. And so it's been a huge part of my life. It still is. And um, when Hard Times got really popular, I think if Hard Times wasn't 
I think if Hard Times didn't get as popular as it got, I might have really detached from the, the music scene. Mm. I got kind of jaded pretty quick. Um, there's a lot of like really intense like uh, groupthink and witch hunting that goes on in small scenes, and it can get kind of tiresome to like, you know, oh these guys are the good guys and these guys are the bad guys, and you know everyone has you always have to pick a side and all this sort of stuff. And yeah, there's no shades of gray. It's just like kind of really drunk people in basements being like, let's attack this person because whatever reason. <laughs> um, I got kind of burnt out on that shit. Um, but then when Hard Times kind of popped off, uh, I think that extended my stay mm. in the community a little bit. Um, so now we're doing a whole bunch of things uh, with Hard Times. Like we're doing more books. We're doing... We're working on a TV show. It might turn into a web series instead. We've had some difficulty pitching it to people. Um, it's really funny, but it's... Uh, I think that a lot of people in uh, Hollywood are a little sketched out by um, online success because you find out pretty quick, like, oh, yeah, hey, 3 million people a month read our website. And they're like, yeah, but a YouTuber was in here last week and he has 50 million views a week, but he... We, we green-lighted his show and no one watched it because it, mm. I'm like, yeah, because it was shit. Like, we're not going to make shit. But, right. Um, <laughs> at least we're going to try not to make shit. Um, but I'm also doing this new thing now um, that's going to be pretty much my full-time job real quick. And it's uh, it's called Outvoice. And pretty much the whole goal is um, I was a freelance writer. Then I was a full-time editor at SF Weekly. And then I became a publisher at The Hard Times. And at each step, I noticed it was extremely difficult to pay freelance writers properly and on time. Mm. Um, there just weren't that many good options out there. And um, so I teamed up with my friend Isa. He played in uh, the band Good Clean Fun. Oh, wow. <clears throat> yeah. And him and I spent about a year building this uh, product. And now we have um, a little beta test going with uh, 10 publishers. And as soon as your editor publishes your article, you get paid. Um, it's same click of a button. So it's publish and pay instead of just publish. And uh, so it's, it switches up the freelance writing situation in a really positive way. I'm really excited to dedicate more time to it. Um, we actually just raised a little bit of money. And so I'm going to be, that's going to be my day to day thing. Um, cool. And I'm going to still uh, be in charge of editorial at Hard Times, but I'm going to do a little bit less of the right now at Hard Times. Like if you order a t shirt, I'm the guy who ships it out. Oh, wow. You know what I mean? <laughs> so right. I'm going to do a little bit less of all that stuff. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so you're empowering these writers and these creators because you've seen both sides of the machine, right? It's fucking horrible, dude. Yeah. One time I, I wrote this article and uh, my editor was like, okay, yeah, it's, you know, I think it was, I was going to pay like 12 bucks, I think. And he apologized and he was like, I'm sorry, it's 12 bucks, but you know, that's the budget I had. And I was young and I was like, I wanted to write. And I was like, yeah, it's no worries. And, uh. So I wrote the article, and then I sent him an invoice, and a week, a month goes by, no check. So I sent him an email. I said, hey, man, I never got a check for that thing. And he goes, oh, sorry. That was my mistake. Resend me an invoice, and I'll file it at the end of the month. So another month goes by. I get the check this time. So this is already like two and a half, three months past when I wrote this thing. Right, right. right. So a long time to chase down 12 bucks. Uh, I get a check in the mail. It's 12 bucks. I go to the bank and I put it in the ATM to cash it. It says, okay, cool or whatever. 
a week goes by and I notice it, <laughs> they had filled the checkout improperly. And so it like bounced. It right. wasn't because of the amount of money in the account. It was just like they wrote the wrong numbers or something like that. And, uh, or I think technically they might've signed it in a way that went through some of the bottom numbers, which oh, I gosh. didn't know was a problem on checks, but I guess the it account can numbers. be. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I got oh, a $35 dude. reversal fee. <laughs> <laughs> and right. uh, I just remember thinking like, Jesus Christ, this is, you know, when I go out to eat with my friends and we want to split the bill, like we don't send each other a check. We got Venmo and PayPal and right. all these sort of things. And yeah. this company, is, it took them three and a half, four months to cost me $35. That was their system. And I just... I thought it was just because everyone like hated or disrespected freelancers, right? Uh-huh. And then once I became an editor, I realized these guys, the editors are overworked. They don't have time to deal with this shit. And then once I became a publisher, I realized there was no real good options. There was no like snap your finger, flip of a switch, we'll take care of your freelance accounting for you. Yeah. So I was like, I have to fix this problem. So I spent a lot of time doing that, and now that's what I'm going to do. That's dope. So yeah. now, so it's getting people to adopt it as a way to hire people. Yeah. That's yeah. that's cool. We got some good stuff coming up in that regard too but we're just getting going good job matt yeah that's awesome <laughs> it's interesting that it's this question of so you went to sf state right yeah so people decide like okay I'm, am i going to be a content creator or am i going to go work for a company and like do something uh-huh. more steady like often sometimes people do a combination of both mm-hmm. but if there's no financial security in that same with like being a musician like mm-hmm. why would you do it well for the community for the exposure for the mm-hmm. creative reasons and like it's important to institute ways to have people feel compensated because mm-hmm. otherwise the culture won't continue mm-hmm. and people don't make cool things. I almost quit being a writer. Really? Right, yeah, right before I started Hard Times. Wow. Um, I was <clears throat> I was freelance writing full time and in main part because of the fucking invoicing nightmares, but also I just didn't have enough developed connections. I just wasn't getting enough work and uh, I was going broke. And people kept telling me I was a really great writer. My editors would tell me that and like my professors and stuff. And I remember thinking to myself, what the fuck is the point of being a really great writer if I can't pay my bills? Yeah. You know, I'm not talking about like an expensive lifestyle. Like I just, I'm not going to be able to eat. So why would I care I'm a good writer? And um, I had like $800 left or something like that. Not to sound super dramatic because I'm sure if I went, went to my mom and I was like, I don't have enough money for food. I'm sure she'd feed me. Um. But I had like $800 left, and I was like, you know, I've had this idea for this comedy website for a long time. I'm going to kind of go all in on this thing. Mm. I'm just going to launch it, and I'm going to do it professionally. I'm going to like, I'm not going to do like wordpress.thehardtimes.com. I'm not mm. going to do like, I'm going to like have a designer design a graphic and a website, and I'm going to make it look good, and I'm going to put everything I have into it. I sank everything I had into it, and it just immediately took off. Um, but, you know, before that, I really did think like, hmm. Maybe it's not for me. And part of that is like, it's really fucking rough the way that creative people are treated. And I started realizing, I was like, dude, there's so many better writers than, than me who can't get work. <laughs> oh God! Like yeah. people who I've seen their writing, I've uh-huh. seen their first drafts and stuff. And I worked alongside them. I'm like, that person's really, really talented and experienced and they can't get work. Mm. So what am I going to bring to the table? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Dark days sometimes. The entrepreneurialism, you saved yourself and then you gave yourself a voice. And I mean, you you helped disseminate and amplify your voice. Yeah, man, I love entrepreneurship. That's what I always have loved about DIY culture and punk is that 
you create because you have to because it fulfills something deeper than just like the mon- the monetization and then sometimes certain people are fortunate that they get to make their living off of it and yeah i've been lucky to do the mc lars for 16 years you know and like it's incredible the music industry's changed so much mm-hmm. but finding platforms and creating opportunities and not giving up on myself and i've never made like a million dollars but i've always got when i wake up i'm like i get to do exactly that's what I huge want. and that, yeah, yeah that's, that's, a, that's a huge thing dream man. come true okay so there's this whole thing about <clears throat> i don't know if you relate to this but there's like this huge uh attitude i think it's common amongst people my age and you're tw- mid-20s i'm 28 okay which is like what do i deserve <clears throat> or i'm not getting what i deserve or i've been shorted or slighted somehow yeah and i really don't i really can't relate to that wow because i realized I have never been promoted. Um, and there have been many people who have given me a leg up and opportunities and stuff. But when it really comes down to it, making your own stuff and and proving it has always been the route that worked for me. Uh. No one said, hey, Matt, what if I give you some money to create your punk comedy website? And for years major advertising networks wouldn't work with us people ignored us they downplayed us i remember people tried to some punks from around here they tried to people i used to play in this band we had like a really controversial image i played this whole comedy character used to spit on the crowd and stuff right wait can you can you share the name of the band sure i played in a band called zero progress and i i um we got bored a little bit halfway through the band and i decided to recreate i started out as a normal band and then I turned it into, I was going to be a comedy character called The Champ, who was like a bad guy pro wrestler who called himself the champion of hardcore. <laughs> and I would like cut wrestling style promos on individual members of the audience. And sometimes this would go over like gangbusters. <laughs> the crowd would love it. It was right. like a mix between brutal hardcore punk and stand-up comedy where everyone was like laughing and then hugging each other and then moshing and having yeah. a great time. And then other times, you know, maybe just... Uh, lack of my skill of consistency or something the crowd would turn on us and like chase us out of these venues right. there'd be like fights it was so when we first started hard times <laughs> i remember there was like some people who were like that guy like spit on my friend in new jersey or whatever like on tour and they would like try to like get people to block hard times and stuff like that Ugh. but pretty much what i'm saying is that's the witch hunting thing you're talking yeah, about I yeah i get pretty sick of that yeah the pretty much the thing that i'm saying is that you have to do your own shit and you have to be undeniable repeatedly, consistently for a long amount of time because it doesn't matter what you deserve or mm. it doesn't matter if you are the right person for the job. People usually just don't, don't give up stuff. They don't give jobs out. You have to like make your own shit. Even like with the TV show stuff, it's like our TV show is never going to happen unless we force it to happen. Right. We're going to have to create a web series. And it's going to have to be immensely popular. And then we're going to have to go to these people because otherwise you're coming into the negotiation saying, hey, I'm this really talented writer. I really want to do this thing. Here's my pilot. And there's a million people like that. Right. Interesting. You just get thrown under whatever. That's just, oh, uh, aspiring. Who gives a fuck? You know, you have to demand it. And I think that's what Hard Times was. It was we're not asking to be a publication we're a publication in spite of everything. Right. You know what I mean? And we're talking about subcultures that aren't like super trendy or huge. Right. But our take on that and the fact that you guys have a fluency with the culture, you're right. able to like correspond with it and, and parody it. That's dope, man. Dude, Hard Times is crazy because like my brother went to London and he's with his ex-girlfriend and there were some street punks like at a record store. 
And that's the scene I grew up in, like street punk leather jacket, whole deal. And uh, he was like, do you think those people know hard times? And she was like, I don't think so. Right? Yeah. This was a couple of years ago. Yeah. And he, like, so he walked up to him and goes, hey, man, you guys ever heard of the website, The Hard Times? And they're like, that's our favorite website. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's pretty incredible yeah. to like get on a plane and fly and then meet someone who's heard of this thing that you created in your bedroom. Right. Actually, that happened to me. I went to Japan. And so I went to Japan. That's probably like a 12 hour flight. Right. And then I got on a bullet train for like an hour and then a bus for an hour. And I went to this weird smaller city to go watch some Japanese deathmatch wrestling. And there was one other white guy in the audience. And he was on the other side of the arena from uh -huh. me. And during the break, he came up and he, and he said, hey, man, he's like visiting Japan. Because I can tell you probably don't speak Japanese. No one here can talk to you. And he started asking me what I did. And I said, oh, man, I run the... I run a comedy company called The Hard Times. And he was like, I love hard times. <laughs> and I just remember being like, dude, I'm a long way from home yeah. for someone to know this little shit that we started. Right. And that was a really weird feeling. <laughs> that wasn't fed to him through Viacom or, or no. it was just... Word of mouth. Word of mouth. That's cool. Dude, it used to be... Word of mouth used to be really, really powerful on social media. I think it's a little bit less now. Interesting. I don't think we could start Hard Times the same way huh. nowadays. Because huh. when we started Hard Times, if you made a good joke, Facebook would show it's like 2 million people. Now they'll show it's like 100,000. They've definitely decided to choke that organic reach. Yeah. And you have to pay if you really want to get your message out there. And that's a lot different. So I don't, yeah. I think, I think it would be probably a lot harder to start today. I um, think about that as a, musician that all the competition now starting now would be very hard yeah. you know what i mean but people do it and it's really youtube youtube and spotify mm -hmm. and but yeah there's so much the gatekeepers want you to monetize mm -hmm. especially facebook mm -hmm. to get it seen it was like hey build your audience on facebook and then it was like now you have to pay us to communicate to that audience it's like which evil. is a big big <laughs> evil turnaround man like it's so weird we'll have like 350 or something like that thousand people like us on facebook and we'll put out an article not all of our articles are top notch but we'll put out a top notch one and mm -hmm. you'll see like two or three thousand people share it which means they like really relate to it they share it wow they'll show it to like and then you look at the reach it's like eighty thousand. it's like so you didn't even show this to all of our people even though obviously our people love it right it's very weird the, the whole i'm those like two or three thousand shares, those used to relate to like two million organic reach. Yeah. That was how hard time started. That's how those kids in London knew about it. Sure. And people in Japan was just their punk friends, the scene, just people would share it and it got spread around organically. Um, we didn't have a marketing budget. We literally had 800 bucks. That's you know amazing. That's I mean? <laughs> so amazing. So wow. we owed all to Facebook's generosity at first. Right. But now we're under their thumb a little bit more than I'd like to be. Well, it's creating this infrastructure that then doesn't rely on these major media companies if you have the ideas and the team. Yeah. And everyone's monetized and their time is valued, you know? Yeah. I mean, do you, do you hope to, like, will you, do you see yourself always working with hard times and being part of it? And, like, would you always want it to be part of your life? I think so. Yeah. I played a pretty critical role, role in it for me to leave it. Yeah. My co-founder, Bill Conway, is capable of running it himself he runs most of the editorial mm. so like we'll have a meeting and we'll decide which headlines and then he really does just take care of it um and i've been focusing on the business and advertising side for quite a bit um but i feel like the voice of hard times is a combination of my voice and his voice and if i were to leave i think it it might be do better but it'd be different mm. um 
So I think I'll always be involved. I don't know how involved. Like I think so. I've been doing hard times full time day to day for I don't know three or four years, and I think this will probably be the first year where I don't consider that my full time day to day. Coming up without voice, that will be my day to day, and then hard times will be the thing I do like on the weekend. I'll help guide it along and make sure I contribute to it. But yeah, I couldn't. It'd be pretty weird if hard times was just out there just doing stuff that I had nothing to do with. That would be pretty weird for me. But. It would feel well. It would feel weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. Hard drive is a little bit like that. Our, uh-huh. vi- our video game vertical. Yeah, yeah. That was something that, um, as soon as we became popular with hard times, I started thinking about other things that I really enjoyed and that I'd want to do. Okay. Video games was like punk, and video games were like that was my whole shit. Right. Um, and so I really wanted to make a video game version of it. I got, there was also some crude business shit where I looked at like the advertising spend in the video game world has gone up every year for ten years. Yes, it's I much know. bigger. <laughs> much bigger than music spend and so i thought that'd be a really good way to expand out um, but nowadays there's plenty of articles that go up on hard drive that i have nothing to do with um so i like that though yeah the uh, jeremy kapowitz is in charge of it and he's immensely talented and i trust him so um he can just do a good job with it that's cool it is a little weird though yeah to be involved in like that was like something that i wanted to exist i picked out the team members and shit and now they kind of operate, and I'm a little removed. Feels a little weird. But if you were like, I'm not feeling that article, you, they wouldn't print it, huh? They trust you. You know, I don't, I won't, I try not to do that sort of stuff. Yeah, okay. Yeah. You they, trust them. Yeah, I trust them. I, I try to, I think that's an important thing between a writer and an editor, or between an editor and a publisher, is to say, you're in this job because we trust you, and if you make mm. a mistake, you'll be able to figure out your own mistakes, and mm. that sort of stuff. If they come for me, if they come to me for guidance, I'll give it to them. But I try not to interject too much. Give them enough creative freedom. They feel ownership over it, and that's when people really contribute their best creative efforts. So now you're you're a boss. You're a content creator. You're an entrepreneur. Does music still like? Do you, can you still go to a show and just love being there and forget about everything? Or do you? Is it hard to like detach and think about like? Oh, like think of funny things about the scene or, you know, is it hard to just have that pure love of music still or? Um, I write headlines every time I go to a show. Okay. (laughs) Um, Right. I definitely still go to concerts and shows, which I guess I consider two different things. Mm. And I am sometimes, I guess I saw like Liam Gallagher, I think, at the Masonic. And uh, I was in the audience. I was just thinking about. It really is kind of like a beautiful gift for someone to come and perform for you. Mm, yeah. <laughs> like it's really kind of like magical. <laughs> I remember just sitting there being like, this is incredible. These guys are so talented and they came all the way here just to play for us. It was like kind of a corny moment. But I, so I can still get, I can still get wrapped up in it. Um, I still get very excited about things. I, uh, there's a Misfits, Rancid, and Chromeg show coming up at Oracle. And Golden Voice is putting it on. And one of the people from Golden Voice sent me an email and was like, hey, we want hard times to be involved. And I was like, through the roof. I'm like, dude, these are like some of my favorite bands growing up. Right. And the show's happening. And for some reason, they feel the need to email me. And they're going to ask me to help market it. And I'm like, that's like, that means so much to me. Yeah. That's way more than an amount of money. Just the fact that Rancid is playing a show and someone in their organization thought, we should ask Matt about this. Yeah, that's. I grew up 
you know, you can look at like little fucking sixth grade profile uh, yearbook pictures of me wearing rancid t-shirts and having a mohawk and shit. So it's yeah. like the idea that rancid's playing an arena and they, their marketing people think that hard times should be involved. That means right. a lot. That's cool. Pirates Press, do you know them? They're from yeah. the area. Yeah. They're doing that Rock the Ship Festival. Like Cox Bar's playing, huge band for me growing up. And like our logos on the flyer and just seeing like Hard Times logo next to Cox Bar's. That's like, whoa. For me, that's like, that's a lot. You know what I mean? That's right. a punk kid. Right. Um, I try to explain it to like my uh, girlfriend or whatever. I'm like, it's like, it's like the Beatles for me or something. You know right. what I mean? Like, I'm really, really a huge fan of some of these bands. So I definitely still get wrapped up in it. Um, the one thing I would say is that it's kind of uh, weird going to shows if you've been a part of the scene for so long in the same place and you kind of know everyone okay it's a little bit it becomes like kind of like a family reunion which i kind of like and i usually feel very good about but at the same time sometimes i kind of wish i didn't know anyone i could just watch the band because everyone wants to ask you something huh or you just i feel bad like if i don't say hi to someone yeah and then you know like someone says like oh he blew me off or something like that and it's like well i just don't want to shake like a hundred hands all the time even if we yeah. grew up together, you know what I mean. You become the mayor of a, of a scene. Nah, I'm not. Of... The, I'm like the <laughs> bad uncle or something like that. I'm not the mayor, but it's just like, does that make sense? It does yeah. It's like there's a there's an additional social pressure yeah. that I don't always want to deal with. Right, right. Um, and yeah. so and so then the question is, if you go to a Liam Gallagher show, that's different, right? You're not gonna have people talking. You know, that's probably. probably right. That probably was part of the reason why <laughs> I was so like, oh man, this is very majestic. Was I didn't have to talk to anyone. Um, um, one of the, the, the like 2007, I went to Leftover Crack show in mm-hmm. Santa Cruz, and Jella Biafra was there. Yeah, and everyone was trying to talk to him, you know. And mm-hmm. I talked to him for a second; he was really nice. Um, but I wonder, like someone like that, I in all my albums, I always have a quote that he put in his spoken word album. Anyone could have made this album. Now go do your own. Uh-huh. I put that in every album. Like having had that influence on a culture, can he enjoy the music still? You know what I mean? And like, what that? I don't know. Yeah. That that's a lot. That's yeah. That's the point where you start to get a little bit resentful and embittered by, like, if you're not invited to things and stuff. You know what I mean? Because I'm Jello fucking Biafra. Yeah. I don't know. I think so. Actually, you know what? I know so because um, I went to go see Negative Approach one time and he was there and he wasn't playing and he, I remember seeing him stage dive. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, so he still, he still has a good dive. Yeah. I do think that it's probably rough just to be a known person in the punk scene. I know that his, um, so we did the article about him as like, uh, uh, like airline passenger wins free Jello Biafra spoken word event or something like that, just because they were sitting next to him. And then he was on a plane once and his bassist was with him and took out a phone and took a picture and put it on Instagram with that caption. So like, (laughs) I actually saw him one time at Punk Rock Bowling and... Brian Baker from Bad Religion saw our tent and ran up and said hi. Uh. Like the guys from Fiddler ran up and said hi. And um, then I saw Jello Biafra walk by. He walked by, he saw the tent, and he just like kind of like grimaced <laughs> a little bit and kept walking. Like I can tell we irritate him a little bit. So <laughs> you're supposed, to, but that's what you're supposed to do, right? Yeah. Irritate the older. Part of the thing was we were supposed to like poke fun at the golden cows. You know uh, what I mean? Right. Like, um, of punk, and I think we do a pretty good job of that. Um, but I also think that we've we've started to kind of <laughs> transition a little bit from just making fun of the golden 
I think golden cow is the right word. Yeah. The, you know, uh, golden cows of punk. And we started to instead just be the punk scene, making fun of the golden cows of like society at large, a little bit bigger targets. You know what I mean? Yeah. Which is, I think, a little bit more comfortable for us because it was always a little weird to talk about, well, we really enjoy the the guy and the band. We just, you know, our job is to make jokes. You know right, what I mean? Right, right. <laughs> Right. Have you ever had any contact with Ian McKay? Yeah. Is he a fan? Yeah. Uh, I don't think he's a fan. <laughs> um, Ian McKay, when I was in college, he, I hit up info at discordrecords.com and I said, hey, can I interview Ian? And like 10 minutes later, he got back to me. He's like, yep, yeah, just call me anytime. And I interviewed him for like two hours on the phone wow. for my little punk scene. Wow. Like a little, a thing I was printing like 30 copies of. And you know, all the questions I was asking him were, just bullshit like that he's answered hundreds and hundreds of times and he was so generous with his time yeah he called me a different day because something popped in his head about it he sent me a postcard and i just remember like being like kind of blown away by his generosity and niceness um and also like his insights i honestly feel like the conversation i have with him like kind of changed my life sounds a little corny to say that's amazing man but he's he has a lot of really good advice um what are some things you remember that he said like he was talking to me, um, first of all, he kind of helped get me into journalism because I said I wanted to do a comedy interview and he said, no, I refuse. And so I had to give a real interview. And then once I was doing that interview, I realized I kind of liked doing that. And then that became my job at SF Weekly was interviewing musicians. Yeah. So he kind of geared me in that way. Um, but he also, in that interview, he talked to me about thinking about things more critically about defining what is punk and what is hardcore. And he had this thing about how you can't worry so much about what's around the bend of a road. You have to worry about what's right ahead of you and enjoying the work. He talked to me about how he was on his back fixing a record rack at Discord Records, even though he's like, you know, the founder or CEO or whatever. Um, I think his work worth that dick and his... The way that he's always trying to do what he thinks is right, which sounds kind of basic, but in the punk scene is not always the case, right? There's a lot of guys who just go like, whatever feels best or whatever is... Whatever makes money. Right, whatever makes money. And Ian's more like, whatever I think is right. His sense of morality is was inspiring. I don't know if I still share it, but I get at least get a little inspired by it. Interesting. I tried to talk him into coming onto my new podcast, and he said that he would, and then he said, oh, I don't, I'm not so sure. I think he... I think he's worried that um, there's too many podcasts out there. Like he would have to go on a whole bunch. He'd have to say yes to a bunch of people. Also, he would. Um, there's always like that chance that someone invites you on a podcast, and then you get in there, and then it turns out to be like a alt right podcast or something like that. You know what I mean? And you're yeah, like, oh, oh ooh, I don't know about that opinion, guys. <laughs> They're, yeah, baiting him into saying something controversial. Yeah, like he doesn't want to be like a part of some shock jock radio thing. People think of them as racist Whoa. because of guilty of being white, right? Oh, and I was like. I didn't have that perspective, and I was like, I was wondering how many people share that perspective. I don't know. What have you ever heard that? No, no I haven't either. I mean, I've heard criticisms of that song, yeah. but I've also heard Ian explain that song and kind of put it into context and kind of just distance himself from it and talk about how he was fucking sixteen when he wrote it. Right. Like that. Yeah. Um, I've never really heard that. You yeah. know what I have heard that was weird? Um, <laughs> things like that stick out to me. Uh-huh. We were working with PBR, and then. Um, We did like one or two campaigns with them, and then they said, ah, yeah, we kind of got to stop. And I was like, what's going on, man? Like, you guys were all gung-ho. We met with you guys, you know? Mm. They were all fans of Hard Times. Yeah. And he's like, ah, you know, 
you know, on the low, I guess I'm saying on a podcast now, but that's fine. I don't care. Uh, he was like, there's a person here in the office who thinks that all punk is racist. And I was like, what? Like, they're like, yeah, they think, they think hardcore and punk is all racist. And someone at that Charlottesville rally was wearing a PPR shirt and we got a bunch of flack for it online. So we're trying to make sure we don't engage with anything else that might be construed as racist. And I was like, okay, that's a very weird reason. But, yeah. Um, yeah, not all punk is racist, but I didn't even bother sending that to him. I'm like, if you believe that, I'm not really quite sure what to. How can I change your mind? My threat is I, they definitely don't have that reputation. There's a lot of I don't think so. Either. There's a lot of bands in punk that should have that reputation. Yeah. There's a lot of sketchy bands. I and, would have considered My Threat one of them. And this idea that there are skinhead punks who aren't racist—that that's more of a British concept. I've always thought if yeah. you're a skinhead punk, you're racist. But someone explained to me years ago that isn't necessarily true. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, so like uh, skinheads into reggae from Jamaica and then working class English kids actually had a lot to do with anti-racism with, you know, mixing Jamaican influences with English influences to make like, uh, reggae music for, for, uh, working class English kids. And then the whole image just got hijacked a bit, yeah. you know, by uh what are they called? National front in England in the eighties. I really like Oi music. So I've heard a lot about how people think that all skinheads are racist. Kind of a bummer. Yeah. I was actually thinking it's kind of a joke. There's probably some hard times headline in here about, so it used to be everyone thought all skinheads are racist, but the truth was that wasn't the case. And then it started being everyone, now everyone thinks that those Fred Perry's that the Proud Boys wear, <laughs> that if you have one of those, you're racist. And I was trying to think there's got to be some joke where it's like a skinhead wearing a Fred Perry and he has to decide to explain whether or not his shaved head doesn't mean that he's racist or his shirt doesn't mean that he's racist. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like all these different things about it where it's like he's signaling to the entire world that he's racist and he's got to break it down one by one how he's not. At some point, you got to give up, right? You got to just like change your look. <laughs> well, yeah, this is interesting, Matt. It's like comedy always has the power to tell truth in surprising ways. Mm -hmm. Like you have to laugh at these horrible things and then but things can become maligned and flipped and villainized. And I guess the solutions you just can't care if you know in your heart that you're yeah. you're not racist and you're not sexist and you're not homophobic but if someone says you are you have to double down on that you're not but you can't let it yeah. destroy you well dude so i have that proud boys shirt because i wore that shirt for fucking five or ten years before the proud boys even existed you know the the black fred perry with the gold twin tips yeah 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 and i don't wear it anymore like because i'm just like i'm not really gonna about to have conversations on the street about how i'm not a proud boy you yeah, know, so it's interesting, like the times that you retreat, retreat and then the times where you dig in. If it was a bigger part of my identity, you know, I could see why skinheads dig in because it's like this is a huge part of who I consider myself to be. Right. So I'm not just going to change just because mainstream media has represented me to be something that I'm not. Um, but with the Fred Perry, I'm just like, ah, I'll just wear different colors. I'm not going to wear the black and gold one. Yeah, that's that happened. Something similar happened to me in like 2014, 2013. I had a few songs about Peppy the Frog. Uh -huh. I had an M Squad oh, yeah, shirt yeah. with the A's hat. And then that became this whole, when Hillary posted the picture of it, became that became hijacked. I was like, uh -huh. okay, I can't do these songs. I can't sell this shirt. It's weird, right? Yeah. Yeah. But I wasn't going to dig in and be like, this is my identity. There's always more to write about. I know. It's weird, though, because yeah. how many times do you want to retreat? You know, it's weird. The meaning of things can just, the connotations of them can change. I can see how Pepe, you're like, all right, well, I'm not going to be able to beat this fucking wave. That's kind of like, that's right. the weird thing about like Pepe is like, that was like every fucking major outlet was telling everyone that this was a racist symbol. Yeah. So you can't stand by that. 
And I think the Fred Perry with the black and gold, it became the same thing where the media impressions of all of the Proud Boys at these racist rallies yeah. with the, that particular shirt on, you can't wear the shirt anymore. They kind of destroyed it. Or Exactly, man. And yeah. it, it, because it eclipses the original thing. Right. So it's too hard to walk down the street and explain to every single person you walk by, oh, that's not what this means. It's not what it means. Yeah. Just, you just got to get a different color shirt. <laughs> right. And is it like being edgy to like still rock the shirt and explain it? Or is it being edgy to like put your energy into I think, um, making books, making cool other yeah. stuff? I right? think Sheer Terror, the New York hardcore band, I think, I think they said they were still going to wear the shirt and they got in some confrontation with the Proud Boys about it. Um, mm. Oh, so, I mean, I could see, they, I mean, they've been wearing that sort of shirt for like, the guy was like, I've been wearing this shirt for 30 fucking years. I'm not yeah. going <laughs> to, I don't know. I'm not as tough as those guys though. So I just back down. The Bay is a little more sensitive maybe than yeah. the rest of the world. Yeah. People. And so I, I think when you're here, you just have to be careful. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't no, know. for sure. I mean, it's fucking, I heard about, I, uh, my friend, Senny Mao, she's, uh, works with hard times, take some of our photos. And, uh, I was telling her about the, um, the polo that we put out and some of the response to it about people saying it looked like a proud boy shirt. And she said that she was at a show one time and this kid showed up and he was like 23, 24 years old. And he had that shirt on the, um, the black and gold Fred Perry that the proud boys wear. Mm. And, uh, they almost got beat up and he had no idea about the connotations of it. And he had to go to the merch table and buy a new shirt. Wow. And I remember thinking when I first started going to punk shows, that was kind of like the old trope was people like, what do I wear so I don't get beat up? And yeah. I used to always say, no one's going to beat you up for what you wear. Nowadays, that's <laughs> not so true. It's a Proud Boys shirt. You better watch out. You right. know what I mean? It's come full yeah. circle. Yeah. I mean, and that's why I think the, the underground culture and like the live community of like sitting down, talking to people like you, why I love doing the podcast, yeah. why I love DIY shows still and I try to play as many as I can. It's because the human connection of like, when we get away from our phones and from our computers and from all this stuff, we, it really is necessary Yeah, dude. To, to be alive. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I think if I didn't have the job that I had, I would spend a lot less time online. I think, okay. I, I was trying to think That's about, fair. I was trying to think about this. I, I think, I don't know if you, you feel the same way. Almost something about Twitter in particular. I feel like it like maybe even just the entire way that it's set up just like attracts the worst parts of everyone's personality where it's like, why am I spitting this information out to all these people? It's like this weird, do you have any friends who have a Twitter feed where it's just a huge long list of fights that they've been in? Mm. And it's just like, like gripes that they have. And Definitely. It's, it's like, dude, this looks like really bad for your mental health. I mute those people. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I have some friends where like they're kind of normal in person and then online it's all just like, it's like they literally log into Twitter and they're like, today I'm fighting fucking Nazis. And you can just tell. And then they get into some conversation and they turn their thing private. You know what I mean? They're like, I'm going private. I've been doxxed. I'm like, why are you involved in this stuff? I know. <laughs> becomes a therapist, but the therapist becomes this robot that owns their mind. Yeah, dude. And dude, people fuck themselves up on Twitter. I know. Do you feel like more than <laughs> other platforms? I kind of feel like more than other platforms. Because yeah. like Instagram is like <laughs> is a little bit more like you share a picture of your dog. It's a little bit less like engagement or something i don't yeah. know because you can't link to things as easily yeah and facebook's a little dead nowadays there's just less people yeah. on there i feel like twitter's just like this battleground sometimes so this is interesting do you feel like facebook is going the way myspace went 10 years ago when was the last time you made a facebook status just to your friends that was just text like oh like what i'm doing probably man year or two yeah it's always Same. promoting stuff i realized that and it's like 
Interesting. It, that didn't used to be the case, right? Yeah. People used to just talk to each other on there. Yeah. And I never go on there and talk to people anymore. Right, right. So I think it's, I think part of this organic reach thing I was telling you about, uh-huh. I was telling, talking to, to um, my friend who used to be the VP of marketing at The Onion, and he was telling me, he's like, dude, if you look at their actual stats, there's just less people on there. Like, there's just less people on Facebook. So that's why they want to monetize it, the stranglehold. Yeah, yeah. And that's probably why the, re- the reach is going down is half of it is the stranglehold, but half of it's just there's just less people to check it out. And then Interesting, e- Instagram and WhatsApp, um, they're going to both, now they're going to be branded as Instagram from Facebook and WhatsApp from Facebook. They're changing their names. And they say part of the reason is Mark Zuckerberg is upset that people don't like Facebook, but they like these other apps that he owns. And he's like, you got to fucking recognize that it's Facebook. Right. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I do feel like I feel like Facebook is is falling off a bit. I don't know. I, I feel like there's something about these Twitter people. I don't know. I, I just I see people and they they seem to have such a bad time. I was trying to understand if maybe it has just a little bit to do with the actual structure of Twitter where you send a thought out to like 5,000 people, mm-hmm. maybe that's just literally not the best way to communicate because all you're going to do is get responses from people who disagree or something. So you feel like you're in this confront, this constant confrontation. Or if not enough people affirm quickly enough, you're like, oh, well, maybe I don't actually like flowers. Yeah. Like you have, there's this, it's very, it's strange and codependent. It's very weird. Have you ever yeah. done anything on Twitter where you got, wrapped up in like a narrative that's very popular and all of a sudden you're very popular on Twitter? That's an interesting question. I mean, I had, I used to have this shirt that was Michael Jackson with ET. Uh-huh. All my controversies are about my merch. And I was uh-huh. like, I'm not selling this anymore. I, I saw this documentary. Now I don't know if he's necessarily innocent. Uh-huh. And, um, a lot of people were like, you go Lars. That's great. And a lot of people were like, well, you sold it before you're a hypocrite. But I was, so I was like, <laughs> but more people were like, I, I respect your decision to not infringe on his copyright. <laughs> I've had things almost in the opposite regard oh. where, okay, so I'll post something just about my day yeah. and like kind of no one cares and that's okay. Um, and then I, I will post something like, um, I wrote this article for Rolling Stone about uh, a black kid who worked at the Nike call center and the calls he had to deal with after the Colin Kaepernick campaign. Oh, interesting. You had a lot of just crazy racist people called and just fucking cussed him out and threw slurs at him. Jesus. And he told me all about it. I wrote this article and I put it out there and I thought it was a good piece of journalism and I thought it was interesting. And it was uh, it was a Hard Times fan who came, who was, that's why oh, they reached out to me. That's cool. Um, but all of a sudden, like really prominent journalists were like retweeting me and praising me. And I had all this attention for like a little hot second because... I had filled in a piece of that narrative that everyone is building together. Right. It's almost like if you're not on that narrative, you're just like out in the wilderness by yourself. So it's like if you contribute a piece of information that proves that Trump is racist or that Trump fans are racist, Uh oh boy, Twitter can be a very positive place where like all your fucking friends hang out. And you get attacked too. But yeah, yeah. um, It's very interesting how it's like you have to either throw in a piece to the narrative or you go crazy having all these fights against people <laughs> i don't know that's it if you want to be active on on yeah. that platform yeah <laughs> and whereas 10 years ago you just create content make music make whatever it is and hope that like you put out a book you put out an amazing book and you hope that it finds an audience but it's not about do does my presence live or die based on how i'm tapping into the right part of the zeitgeist yeah that could be like 
if you're not grounded, that can make you want to quit and just live in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also, I think, it, you ever notice, like, people, <laughs> it's almost like online is, like, everyone is really upset and the world's falling apart and there's, like, Nazis on every corner of every street, you know? Yeah. And then you walk out into the world and you, like, go down to the beach and there's, like, a whole bunch of families hanging out. And you're like, hey, it's actually not so bad. I agree with that. <laughs> I definitely agree with that. And I think that's, yeah. That's why I love, that's why I love touring because I meet people and, and it's all good. People uh-huh. aren't angry and it's yeah. not the end of the world. Yeah, you know it's not I mean? the end of the world. <laughs> I was in I was in Vegas and I remember I was on Twitter and there was like it was like a fucking race war. Uh-huh. It was like a fucking race war on Twitter. And uh then I went down to the hotel pool and there's people from every single race, all these different families in the same pool hanging out and like playing fucking pool volleyball with each other and shit like that. And I was like Sometimes I wonder what we're doing to our brains to create these huge negative worlds that we live in online. It's like it can't be that good. Um, right. Now I I'm super thankful to have like I have like roommates who like ground me and a girlfriend who grounds me and there's like actual human connections. Yeah. Um I feel like if you live too much online, which I'm definitely at risk of doing because of my job. Right, right. Cuz we have to make jokes about shit like in the moment, you know? Yeah. So like what are people talking about online? Yeah. Um I feel like that can be really, really bad for you. Well, I want to end talking more about, if you don't mind, like what was your, your decision to be straight edge and how that's maybe affected and inspired you in, in your life. And, you know, Twitter is addictive. Online is addictive. And I feel like me being a sober person, I can go really deep into things that I realize are, uh, you know, like I used to treat other things. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And it's like, I feel like my life got so much better after all that. I made that decision. Yeah, man. Um, I went straight edge like, uh, I think it was probably like 16, 15. And um, I don't know if I had the actual reasons for it when I was first doing it. But over time, it's become incredibly clear to me that there's a lot of addiction problems in my family mm. i don't think i knew too much about them maybe i subconsciously knew and maybe that's why i was attracted to it um and every once in a while i'll like think about hey maybe you know maybe straight edge isn't for me anymore you know like i'm getting kind of older i don't play in a straight edge band anymore um almost all my friends who were straight edge have broke edge um i think oh maybe i'll just like slide out of this thing and then i'll go spend time with someone who's an addict or something like that and i'm like all right well probably gonna be straight edge (laughs) um like i I think that straight edge has helped me an incredible amount in my entrepreneurship i'm not 100 percent sure that might just be a bad uh analysis of my own personality but i think the notion of when things go wrong if you're straight edge you have to like deal with them right and if you're not straight edge you have a little bit of like you can just blot out that pain or that problem and not deal with it and put it on hold and then let it die on its own course right and i think dealing with those problems head-on has helped me as an entrepreneur because entrepreneurship's all about uh conquering different problems sometimes really complex problems that seem insurmountable um like oh fuck we're gonna need a hundred grand to fix this thing like where are we gonna get a hundred grand you know like all that sort of there's a lot of really big problems you have to face head on. Yeah. And I think the straight edge mentality of being like believing in yourself and not needing a crutch and wanting to get this shit done. I think it's been a big help. Mm. Um, at the same time, every once in a while I think about 
the social consequences of it, of like not being able to have a beer with people because it's yeah. like a huge social tradition. You know what I mean? Um, but ultimately, it hasn't held me back too much. I like straight edge. Um, I notice uh, in my dating life, uh, the older I get, the more uh, people like it because it's like when you're younger, it's like you're boring. Uh-huh. But then when girls start to turn like 26 or 27 or whatever, they're like fucking sick of skateboarders who are high all the time you know what i mean right so they're like, especially in california <laughs> exactly yeah. so they're like oh, i actually enjoy hanging out with matt because he's not going to be high all the time yeah <laughs> and he can drive yeah, yeah. I, it's a kind of a weird thing where it's like when you're 21 i remember i dated a woman for like five years and then we kind of broke up in part because like i wouldn't go to bars mm. and uh you know she found a guy who would <laughs> right, right. and um that sort of stuff, it starts to fade out the older you get. Um, people stop caring. Um, that's So that's been positive, too. I kind of wish I was still in a straight-edge band. The last straight-edge band I played in was called Pure. Um, speaking of things that people misconstrued as racist, the fucking oh, God. dudes in my band who are uh, Mexican all thought that was a good band name. And I was like, dude, I'm the front man. I'm white. I can't play in a band called Pure. <laughs> And with a white aesthetic, like they wanted like a white album that said pure on it. I'm oh, like, dude, no. I don't really want to. But they were like really dead set on it. Um, <laughs> and yeah. it was a straight edge band. Yeah. 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 And there's also like, do you know, there's like a, there's like a connection between like uh, white supremacy and like straight edge. Like certain white supremacist oh. dudes like think like they're going to keep their body and genes pure by. You know, you were talking about your conversation with Ian McKay is mm-hmm. looking at the road instead of focusing on what's around the corner. Mm hmm. For me, straight edge has been allowed me to do that better. The thing I notice about people who aren't straight edge though is that they they have like they'll just like have like a they're like, oh, I do it in moderation, you know, and then something bad happens in their life and then it's not in moderation at all. So it's like you just have a normal uh weed habit and then um like your dad dies and then you're fucking like taking gigantic dab hits like all the time, nonstop. Right. You can't even speak to people. Um Well, going back to the social media thing. It can become your therapist, and then it becomes this monster that enslaves you. That was actually the one time I got kind of like uh, kind of an unhealthy relationship with social media was when I, that, uh, my first girlfriend and I, who dated for like five and a half years, we broke up. I started like posting like a lot of Facebook statuses, and I, I started to realize it was like, oh, I just need like validation from people. Cause that I got, all would be well. Yeah, because I got cheated on. I like, was feeling weak. So I'm it was like, sorry, man. You, it's nice to have like 100 people like something you put out if you're feeling like kind of low and insecure. Right. And but I was I think I was lucky enough to catch what I was doing like a year after it happened. You know, I got kind of into social media too much for a while. Yeah. Um but yeah, cuz social media can be addicting too. Straight edge people are funny cuz they always replace it with something. Like I'm into gambling and sex and violence and you know what I mean? <laughs> so like right. I don't think it's possible just to like be like a monk. <laughs> no, that's true. I Strange people, yeah, and but sometimes <laughs> the things that they invest in end up being like make them super successful. Yeah, and like I'm a workaholic for sure. Yeah, there I, you go. I work probably fucking ninety hours a week or something. Yeah, that's um, great. That's that's good, right? If you if you're aware of that and you can be like, well, I, I had a good year. Yeah, um, that's cool. I'm well. I'm glad you have a healthy relationship and like <laughs> all that is like that you were able to get past that pain. Yeah, man. Wow. Um, straight edge is the best. More yeah. more people should be straight edge. I also think that um, a lot of people, <laughs> it's, <laughs> you ever think about, uh, how old are you? 36. Have you ever thought about um, like 45-year-old, 50-year-old straight-edge dudes? 
there's not that many normal ones. <laughs> <laughs> Have you thought about that? Well, there's um, I've, there's this book, <laughs> Infinite Jest, you know, by David Foster Wallace. Uh-huh, he yeah. talks about the crocodiles, uh-huh. who are the older straight guys at the AA meetings with tattoos, and how they're very much not normal. Uh-huh. And I envis- So when you said that, I thought of that. I always, yeah. I always think, like, I really enjoy straight edge. I, right. I like being straight edge. Then I think about, like, am I going to be a fucking weirdo? Yeah. And they, and they, well, they really need the community. Yeah. But it's like, I don't really, do you, do you really want to need this community of like 17 year olds when you're like 50? <laughs> well, there's yeah. a difference. Don't you think, Matt, there's a difference between sober and straight edge? Maybe? Yeah. Yeah. But maybe not really. No, there's definitely a difference. There's definitely a difference. But I just, I think like, um, Pat Flynn from Half Heart, uh-huh. he seems to have a very normal life. He's an older straight edge dude. Um, I've hung out with him a couple times. But he seems very normal and balanced and healthy. Yeah. He's a teacher. He's got a wife. I think he just had a baby. Um, but it's like sometimes I look at straight edge dudes when they're older. I'm like, I don't really want to be that. Yeah. So would that maybe you say, well, maybe I'll start drinking at a certain period? Or yeah, like, I don't know. Like yeah. 40. You know what I mean? One of the things I re- that was really cool doing, war- I did Warp Tour before I was straight edge. And then I did three summers. The second summer I was finding the sober community there and the meetings and like that community it was, and it was older people who ran it. And that was cool mm-hmm. to see that intersection of like the punk rock community and that world really helping people get through the stuff they were trying to put off by, you know what I mean? Not being sober. And like, that was cool. I'd never been in a traveling group of people and found like my crew of people who were there in this. What year were you on Warped Tour? I did 2011, 2013 and 2015. Cool. So it was like, that was really interesting to, to be part of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. It changed my life, and it made me realize, oh, this is possible, and um, it makes you stronger. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. I don't know. I think that that's – I wonder. You guys ha- – you have – the Hard Times has some funny jokes about, like, edge bands, and I think that's cool. You can make fun of the yeah. scene. Yeah, we try to make fun of – what we try to do is if – we try to find people who represent the actual thing we're making fun of to write the stories. So it's like most of our straight edge jokes are written by straight edgers, you know, it's like okay. making fun of yourself, vegan yeah. jokes by vegans so that you actually know the intricacies of your own. It's kind of part of the problem of like me and radical ideologies is like my whole job and my natural instincts are to find silly things and poke at them and make them fall apart. And like straight edge is a radical ideology. Yeah. That's so it's true. like my, all my natural instincts tell me just to make fun of it. Uh-huh. Um, but I also believe in it. So I'm kind of a conflicted guy, I suppose. Um, well, it's like you can, there are Christians who can like make fun of, f- make jokes about the Bible, but it doesn't change their philosophy. Yeah, for sure. I feel like um, I don't have that many radical ideologies anymore. I used to kind of, I was the type of guy where I was like, I, um, I wouldn't wear any shirts that had uh, labels on them mm-hmm. or like brands. Okay. You know what I mean? And I, um, I had a lot of just like anti-capitalistic tendencies and, really diehard extremist straight edge views um and i think now the the really my top moral priority is to take care of myself well enough that i can take care of people around me yeah it's like that's actually all i really those are my only like i will if you pay me i will slap any brand on my chest um so that i can take care of my writers and my editors um and that's been kind of a weird transformation for me. It's mm, interesting. I was thinking about it. It's almost like there's like some sort of actual positiveness to self-interest. It's like you can't actually help people unless you've already helped yourself enough. So I've actually kind of gotten into that mentality a little bit more where I 
feel like I'm the guy who's willing to do some dirty work and cross some um, ideological lines to get shit done in order to keep the lights on and, yeah. and do whatever needs to be done. And that's been a change for me in the last couple of years. Interesting. It's like that metaphor that put on your air mask before you put on your kid's air mask. You yeah. have to help yourself to help other people. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. Yeah. And, and, but you know, a lot of the people who you're putting the air mask on for them or whatever, they wouldn't do the things that I'm willing to do right. to pay for the air mask. Right. So it's, it's they benefit a, without. And I actually even now I've gotten to the point where one of my morals is I like doing those things. And then I like even, sh- I like shielding the people who I'm helping to the point where they don't even no. I, I like them to even just be able to be like, oh, Matt, how could you do that? Like, let them have their moral tendencies like, <laughs> that I, I don't know, believe I in know. anymore. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I'm a bad guy, but let's just, <laughs> I'll get this shit done. You know what I mean? Um, <laughs> Were you ever, um, like, did you ever have any eating restrictions? Did you ever try that stuff? Or I never got into that. I That was like the thing where some of my friends started going vegan and yeah. obviously it's a big part of the straightish community. Issa, my co-founder at Outvoice, he's vegan. And um, I always felt like, dude, one of the things I loved doing most in life when I was at that age was after the show, going and getting burgers with all my friends. Yeah. That was like the big social element of my life. I didn't right. go and drink. I didn't go and smoke. So I was like, well, I'm going to go get a burger. And it's so taking that away from me was I couldn't. That was I never even seriously considered it. Yeah. Yeah. And then I got even now that I'm older now, I just like I kind of don't believe in any of that stuff at all. Yeah. The, the eating restriction stuff. Yeah, I don't yeah. believe. I don't. I don't think it has very much merit. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Everyone, right? Well, you guys have the, you like you said your vegan writers make write good vegan <laughs> jokes. And my stuff. co-founder's vegan. Oh wow. Yeah, he's and both my co-founders are vegan, both at Hard Times and at Outvoice. I'm surrounded by vegan straight edgers. <laughs> I put that my, the last band I was in was a bunch of vegan straight edgers. Uh, I remember on tour they called me a blood mouth. I thought that was. I thought that was. I was like, "That's a fucking tight name, dude. That is tight. That's cool. That's not a put down. I want to play in a band called Bloodmouth now. A straight edge band of dudes who eat meat. <laughs> That's tight. That's I am. I'm such a bad influence on that topic. I've got my my girlfriend. She started as a vegetarian when we started dating, and now uh, I got her eating steaks. So. <laughs> There's a lot at stake. Hey, that's good. Yeah. Um. Let's last. My last question. Sure. What are your? This might be a very hard question to answer. What are your favorite three albums of all time of any genre? Hmm. Um. I mean, so I like so many. It's kind of hard to pick, but I would just off the top of my head, uh, Operation Ivy Energy. It's got to be up there. I remember when Jesse, the singer of Operation Ivy, told me he liked Hard Times. It was a big moment for me. I grew up on that band. I learned how to play drums listening to Sound System. Yeah. Um, um, let's say maybe like Minor Threat Complete Discography. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I would say... I want to do something that's like not punk and hardcore because I listen to a lot of stuff that isn't punk and hardcore. Yeah. Tom Petty. Um, I don't know. There's uh, one of his later ones, Highway Companions, really good. I like it. It's really like a mellow thing. So you do like some ska stuff. Yeah, man. Yeah. One of my first shows ever was Catch-22. Um, 
when I was into online poker, I used to listen to so much Streetlight that now whenever I <laughs> now whenever I listen to Streetlight, I think about poker. Yeah, it's like when I was in college, I used to play poker like Pavlovian. Ten, ten hours. Yeah, dude, I used to play <laughs> poker like ten hours a day. Yeah, and I would always put on Streetlight Manifesto. Something like the like kind of like the the like symphony orchestra vibe of it felt very like free flowing jazz almost. You know what I mean? Like you're a man on a mission. Yeah, and now whenever I turn it on, I think I think about my fucking old college apartment and playing poker. It's you kind of a you weird. You 10 hours a day? I was very serious in the online poker. It's how I paid for a lot of my bills back wow. in college. Yeah. That's very entrepreneurial and yeah. brave. <laughs> where do you like people to follow you or if they have any comments on this interview? Where do you recommend? Uh, hit me up on uh, anything, man. First of all, just go to thehardtimes.net. Enjoy some of our content. Uh, I got my own podcast. This week, we got a guy on there, um, Eddie Sutton from Leeway. And we were talking about some trials and tribulation of uh, substance abuse. He's got, his stories are fucking insane. Wow. He's blowing me away with the stories of his life. It's like stabbings and like really intense dope addictions and wild stuff. Wow. Um, hit and runs, moving bodies. Fucking, it was a while. I was blown away. I was like, whoa, you're sharing a lot. Um, so that podcast is called The Hard Times Podcast. And if you want to talk to me personally, um, Matt at thehardtimes.net. Or at Matt Sackham on Twitter or Instagram. Hit me up. I'll say hi. Cool. Yeah. I appreciate you sitting down with me, man. I appreciate Thank you coming you. out to Pacifica. This is cool. Good to meet you, the man. First man to get one of those books. Oh yeah. No. This I won't I will keep it on the DL. I'll show my friends. Um it's I think you can pre order it next week. Eight, okay. Eight nine, I believe. It's called The First Forty Years by the Hard Time. I'll put the pre order link up when I post it. Hell yeah. That's Perfect. cool. Yeah. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thanks. Down the system with my blood. Are you part of the problem? Yes. Or part of the solution? And I climb overpasses, spray 
stop the pollution. I bend the hell, I spell it. I spell it D and E. Pay my taxes last minute, intentionally. What? And eventually, you conventional sheep will see that it's meant to be. The man's emancipation from land to nations takes place in this century. Naturally, very little will actually change politically, except we'll all just do whatever we want. Like me specifically. Check my iPod and you'll see. I only steal indie label CDs. Bought a Banksy print on eBay. I'm buying them today just to stick it to the man ironically. Governments have outlived their usefulness. You sheep will just aren't ready for my truthfulness. It's my God-given right as an American to speak of the fleas, love and believe that this is freedom and it's gruesomeness. It's the end of the same. Hillary Banks and McCain. Resigning the same point for a lot of Fuck us, we'll do them on the airplane. Time to bitches that run the right one. The real term is the following one. Great interview. I wanted to say that if there was some static, it's because one of the cell phones was near one of the mics. I tried to edit out as much as I could, but there was nothing wrong with your speakers. That was just me recording the interview without headphones, which I will not do anymore. Headphones are very important. Neil from Cuckoo Kangaroo, when I interviewed him, I was like, it's fine. We don't need headphones. He's like, are you sure? And luckily that interview didn't have any static, but I'm not trying to start static, but I wanted to explain the technical element. Okay, guys, now it's time for the MC Lars fan of the week. We've got Ryan in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and he tells the story of when he brought his daughter Grace to her first concert and the exciting event that happened. So I'm going to play the message. Then I have a recording of the moment in the show he talked about. So we're going to play that back to back. Peep it. True. Oh, and Ryan and Grace got free shirts. If you want to be a featured MC Lars fan of the week, sign up on the Patreon and you get the secret phone number and we'll get it popping. All right, here we go. Hi, MC Lars. This is Ryan Kelly. I live here in Pittsburgh. I think you remember us from uh, your... I, I, the story I got to share is is my favorite interaction with you. It was the first time uh, my oldest daughter had been, ever been to a concert, and her name's Grace. And you gave her a shout-out on the set. At the beginning of your set, you were like, hey, I just want to give a shout-out to Grace. It's her first concert. And then when you did Mr. Raven... And you called Grace up to the stage. That's my youngest daughter, Emma. She's got to wait a couple more years for her first concert. But uh, you called her up to the stage for Mr. Raven, and you were starting out to show her how, you know, you wanted to interact with her with Mr. Mr. Raven. And then she finished the rap all up in my grill, like, nevermore. Took off your hat. Took off your, your gold chain. And you put it on her, and you're like, all right, I'm out. This is MC Lars part two. And it was – I was so proud as a parent. Like, to have her interact with somebody cool like that, and she talks about you all the time, man, is awesome. And, uh, yeah, I don't – I mean – Thanks, bro. Before we get on out of here, we want to do one more Edgar on Toe rap. Is that okay with you guys? Yeah! All right, can we bring yo? Can we bring up our friend? Who, do you want to come on stage to help us out with this song? Oh, yeah. will you help us rap this song? Yeah. All right, cool, cool, cool. Yeah. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, 
Like someone go, who's that? You're gonna go, who's, who's that, that rapid? Who's that? Who's, who's that, that rapid? I go, Mr. You go, Mr. Raven. Who's that? Who's that rapid? Mr. Mr. Raven. Are right, you ready? We're gonna do it, okay? Cool, cool, cool. First show and you're already stealing the show. Uh, uh, uh. Thanks, guys. Thanks for coming out. This has been awesome. We'll be back soon. We got EMP in the house tonight. It's been an awesome episode. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Grace. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, listeners. Hope you're all having a good summer. Next week, we got Beefy, who just finished a new album that I'm on. And it's episode 52. I've been doing this a year. What a year. Freaking cool. Freaking awesome. Freaking tight. Like a possum. And I rocked them when I freestyle at the end. I'm going to do a freestyle and I can't pretend that the show was over. So I came to flow. MC Lars let everybody know. Oh, nerdcoretour.com for the shows. I'm going with Aquabats and Cuckoo Kangaroo, yo. Then I'm going out with Oakley Doakley because they're really, really cool. And I'm really not joking, G. Fire fire bars watch that little Nas X shout out to him he wrote a really nice tweet when Billy Elish replaced him as the number one artist number one song Old Town Road was a great long song and I had a funny parody I was gonna do Rainbow Road gonna take my car down to Rainbow Road I'm gonna drive till I can't no more and I was like oh I'm gonna do this and I googled it and someone already did the parody so <sighs> all right this outro's long. This episode has been long. Life is short and art long. The crisis fleeting, experience perilous, and decision difficult. Okay, that's what's up. Thought we'd end with that quote in freestyles. The episode's over. Bye. It's no more. Tune in next week. It will be out Monday. I know this one was supposed to be Monday, but it came out Wednesday. That's because life happens. Okay, bye.